0: evening we're going into chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. And here is one of those problems, 17 problems that Corinth had that provoked Paul to write this letter of correction and instruction to them uh, in regard to correcting the body, the church, the congregation there at court, And so he's discussing here uh, them taking one another to court, brother to brother disputes. We've just studied the problem that their lack of discipline brought to them in the first place. Now I mean by discipline, not personal discipline, as much as body discipline. Congregational discipline. The whole book deals with the local body. If you notice, our outlines have emphasized that. Uh, uh, In regard to the problems they had, Paul's dealing with the body, the church. People will always have problems. But the church has to stand for what's true and what's right. And it it makes its decisions based on love, not on what's right or wrong, or how you've been wronged by a brother. It's the fact that you love a brother. And you'll even even allow uh, a brother to uh, defraud you for the sake of the body the church. Well, they were going to court with one another, you've probably already read it, and so uh, it will talk to the individual because that's what the local body is made up of. Now, Paul will address the problems with individuals, but he's primarily dealing with the body, the church. So it's emphasis is not what's wrong with the individual. Uh, it's emphasis is, in this letter, what's wrong with the, this body. The body correction is in view. I think that will help us if we get that concept across, see that in the, as we read Corinthians. I think the book of 1 Corinthians deals more with how the local body is functions and can be corrected than any other epistle in the New Testament. It's kind of unique in that respect. It has less attention given to individual problems than any other epistle Paul wrote. He's really dealing with the corporate power, the corporate weaknesses, the corporate uh, changes, the corporate strength, Uh, And so we're dealing here with a corporate concept. Now, it's a body concept. It's not an an institution concept. Uh, I don't want to get into an argument about this and uh, is the church an institution uh, or not. I really don't care as long as it's not... Viewed as an institution as long as it's not uh, expected to operate the way an institution operates. And I'll let you figure that out. The church doesn't operate by both of the membership as an institution. Uh, It operates with Jesus being the head. That's as far as I want to go with that. So it's a play on words sometimes and and uh, whether it's an institution or uh, not. And I don't particularly care for those kind of arguments because it's a matter of semantics. But I did want to mention it. I don't really want to get into an argument about words because Paul said the only, uh, uh, the, uh, they only subvert people's listening and doesn't do any good. And so, I'd rather not uh, subvert the listener, and I'd rather have some good uh, done to me. But the church is viewed as a body, and not as a body politic in 1 Corinthians. Now, there's other passages where the church is viewed as a body politic, but in 1 Corinthians, the church is a body as an organism. An organism uh, is a living organ, uh, a living uh, uh, thing that has uh, diverse organs in it, like the lungs, like the body is an organism. It has many parts that depend on each other, and that's the way the body, the church is. Uh, functions together as a whole. So the church as a body, is an organ, is an organism that has organization, but not as a body that is an organization. <clears throat> it would be the difference between my family and the Lions Club, or my body and the Lions Club would be more graphic, I suppose. The church in First Corinthians is viewed as the body of which Christ is the living head and not the ruling head. Uh, you can talk about the United States as a body or England as a body or Thailand as a body and then you have a ruling head over that body. The book of First Corinthians doesn't view the church that way. Uh, the book of First Corinthians deals with the church as a body that has arms, and legs, and eyes, and ears, and Jesus is ahead of that. Now, I don't know whether that makes any sense to you or not, but uh, I thought it was worthy that we at least be confronted with that uh, the nature of this epistle. Uh, and so he views it as an organism with a living head, <clears throat> that's a part of the body. Jesus is in the church; uh, he's a member of the church, and he is a part of the body in the book of First Corinthians. And so, it would be very logical that one problem would cause another, wouldn't it? If you allow, if the church allows one problem, and See, they were, in the fifth chapter, you remember, Paul's main emphasis to the body was that they were glorying in tolerating this situation of this fellow living with his father's wife. And so Paul is concerned about the body. The individual problems will take care of themselves if the body is correct if it's guided by the word of God and not by men's whims is the point. Because you see, if you've got something wrong with your liver, you'll soon have something wrong with your kidneys because we are a body. Uh, That's just the nature of the body. If one part of the body suffers, the whole body feels the pain. And so it's important for you to be out uh, of kilter and the congregation not suffer. And so uh, his main concern is congregational correction. And if the congregation is weak, in its discipline toward this guy living with his father's wife, they're going to be weak in love toward each other, and they're going to be weak toward sexual immorality. It spreads. Look how divorces spread in the church. I can remember a young fella years ago, and if you heard of, one of your relatives or somebody you knew that was in a divorce, it was, it was horrifying. It was like a, a death. But nowadays, it's just commonplace. Well, that you don't want that kind of an attitude to take, place, take root in the church. It can't. You've got to recognize what Paul's already presented. Uh, the standard is the Word of God and he expects us to be faithful to his word. And here's a congregation that's boasting about, they're very proud that they're tolerating this fella. And that was Paul's condemnation of them. Uh, So uh, that same lack of discipline toward this sexual offender in chapter five will be manifested in other ways if you let it go. And that's what we've got in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. You've got the local body uh, as it faces the problem of brother-to-brother disputes. Now, you need to remember, and again, I keep stressing this, and I know you're getting tired of hearing it, but uh, I guess you're just going to get tired. Each time we look at one of these problems, Uh, naturally we need to think about the nature of the body because it's the nature of the body that can deal with these problems since the church is empowered by God. We've already seen that in chapter 1. It's empowered by God. They have no excuse for being this way. But they're proud that they have tolerated this fellow. And so Paul's pretty... His message is pretty heated the whole congregation for tolerating this uh so here is uh the nature of the body uh, can deal with these problems that the church members of the church have since the church is empowered by God uh it's been threatened by division and all those things we've studied so far uh it's able to face two brothers going to court with one another and survive with the proper understanding were it not the nature of the body we would have killed it long ago i mean if the body doesn't recognize the standard that paul presented in chapter 2 of this epistle in regard to we have the mind of christ we We have all things. And he said that in chapter 1 too. Uh, Also in chapter 1 and the first 9 verses. He said they had all knowledge. They had what they needed. They just weren't using it. Uh, The church has to be divinely empowered for us not to have killed it. It has to be divinely empowered. Or man would have already killed it. I mean, of all the stupidity and all of our mistakes and the church is still here, yeah, that pretty well proves that God's at work behind the curtain on the veil of life, on the stage of life, and he's working uh, on behalf of the church that his son purchased with his own blood. Uh, And so that kind of proves that it's empowered by God, the church is. We would have killed it deader than a doornail a long time ago had it not had had, uh, behind it the supernatural power of God. And so the church is what it is, so it can survive what we are and what we do to it. It can survive as long as we recognize the standard, God's Word, and preach it. And that's what he asked them to do in regard to the man living with his father's wife. They knew this was wrong, but they were (coughs) boring in their toleration of this fellow. And if you tolerate something like that, you really don't love each other. You don't love the brother. And so we really do harm the body of Christ. I'm sorry to say that, but it—but it, uh, uh, I'm talking about you and me. I mean our uh, prideful re- uh, reaction would destroy anything uh, but a divine institution. And God is there to make sure that it stands. And, uh, and so the big proof of the divine character of the church is its survival of all of our stupidity. Now let's read here, verse 1 through 11, and then we'll discuss it from five aspects. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not uh, competent to judge Uh, trivial cases do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life and therefore if you have disputes about such matters appoint as judges even men of little account in the church I say this to shame you it is possible uh, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between brothers but instead here's the problem one brother goes to law against another and this in front of the unbelievers the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely uh, uh, You have completely uh, uh, defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves uh, cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral uh, nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor uh, greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and that is what some of you were so you see they've come out of quite a background here That's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now I think he's making a good point there, a good case for his point of never even having the dispute that would lead to a lawsuit. If brothers love one another, uh, wouldn't they suffer wrong if they think they've been wrong for the benefit of the church, for behalf of the church? But only a greedy person, a person that has no love, is going to push the matter and push it out in before uh, the courts. And they're pushing it out. We're going to... Paul mentions the kind of people that you're going to have judging you, homosexuals, <laughs> uh, sexual immoral people. Uh, he, ne- ne- he listed about seven different types of people out here in the world. It gives you a, a, a character reference, and you're going to allow them to judge between brothers in a lawsuit? Isn't that stupid to Take take, when, when you've got members here even the lowest member, uh, uh, the the youngest, the one that was baptized last week, at least he's got common sense. He knows where to go to get the answers, the Bible. And you're going to go ask the world to stand in judgment? Uh, so, so... Uh, his advice to him is take somebody that is very small spiritually and let them judge it. Uh, he's speaking sarcastically to him a little bit. Uh, before you go to the unbeliever's court, uh, cause the unbelievers, they can't even handle their own personal lives, why would you take your matters before them? Uh, they're a bunch of immoral people, as Paul described them, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, and you're going to let them judge your case? Uh, now, I think he says even a dispute of brother to brother is a contrary thing, and it is, because we're supposed to, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love, one for another. Uh, Even without any lawsuits, uh, a brother to brother is a contrary thing, taking one another to court. There are several things against it. Number one, uh, it's contrary to the destiny of the church. He asks three questions, and they already know the answers uh, to those three questions. And that is do you not know that you will judge the world? That's one of them, the questions he gives them. Don't you realize that the word that you preach is going to judge the world? It does judge the world. Are you not uh, competent to judge even trivial matters? Do you not know you will judge angels? That's what we read a minute ago. And so he asked three questions. And they know the answer to each of them. Uh, yes they will judge the world we are judging the world we are judging angels now I don't know if he means the angels that are still uh, righteous or the angels that are still wrong that are fallen I don't know but in either case we are showing the uh, capability of creatures much Inferior to them. And so any angel that refuses to occupy a position is judged by the brothers uh, uh, occupying uh, their decision. And the world is judged. You know, Jesus uh, said on one occasion, If I had not come into the world, you would not have known sin." But now that I have come into the world, you have no excuse for your sin. The life of love that brethren give, live uh, makes them capable of judging the world, solving all kinds of problems, and judging angels. That's what he's telling them. The life of love that they live, uh, love is a theme that doesn't wait till chapter 13 in this book to be discussed because it's being discussed right here. Uh, He's discussing it right here in this problem. It's contrary to the destiny of the church because the church is built on what? On love. Uh, So he chastises them six times in this chapter For their ignorance, when they have no excuse for being ignorant. Uh, Verse 2, 3, 9, 15, 16, and 19. He says, In essence, don't you know? Are you so ignorant that you don't know? Is a statement of their knowledge. And so he actually is saying, you surely know that. You surely understand this. You have the Word of God. Uh, so they have absolutely no excuse because they are willfully ignorant. And willfully ignorant is uncurable. Uh, There's no cure for it. A person that is willfully ignorant. You've got to cure the will before you can cure the ignorance. Uh, Willful ignorance cannot be cured. The person who uh, decided to be ignorant is going to be ignorant. He don't want to know. He has no desire to know. He's willfully ignorant. There's no cure for it. That's why Peter said, be ready always to give answer to every man that asks you. There's a lot of people that are willfully ignorant. They don't want to know. Well, in fact, uh, I got that in my notes here. We'll get to it in a minute about this willfully ignorant deal. And so every time Paul says, don't you know, uh, in this text here, he is judging them for ignorance. But it's willful ignorance. It's uh, something of which they have the right to know. Even if you've got the right to know and don't know, you, you've decided not to know. You've made a choice there. You've made a decision. I, don't, I won't know that. Now, you may not have said it in those words, but you've made a decision. I won't know that. If you have the opportunity and the right to know it and don't know it, it's a sin. Because the scripture says, to him that knoweth to do good and uh, and does not do the good, that he knows to do is sin uh if knowledge is available and uh and it's good knowledge of god and you don't get it uh you have sinned ignorance is not is not bliss as they say or we would be pretty happy people i'm sure happier than what we are if ignorance was bliss Ignorance is damnable when knowledge is available. Now that's a principle. Ignorance is damnable when knowledge is available. And the proof of that is Hosea 4 and verse 6. Because here God said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Well now let's just stop right there before we go any further in that verse. You mean that God would destroy people for lack of knowledge? Yeah, in this case he did. This is the ten tribes that he destroyed in 721 B.C. by Sennacherib. But why are they lacking knowledge? Well, here's why. Because these people have rejected knowledge, you see they had it, they rejected it. See, that's what's going to condemn the world is the fact that they're ignorant and they're willfully ignorant. They want to be ignorant about certain things. Anything that would challenge their way of life, uh, their uh, imaginary happiness or whatever, they uh, they don't want to know about that. And so again, Hosea 4 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And here's why they lacked it. Because these people have rejected knowledge, the knowledge of me. I reject them from being priests to me. And so it isn't that God is unjust and just uh, taking, uh, destroying people who are ignorant. They're ignorant because they chose to be ignorant. They are willfully ignorant. That's why willful ignorance cannot be cured. they got to change the will first. And so if you reject knowledge, uh, you're not far from trouble. It, uh, it is against the church's destiny to have disputes. That's not what the church is about, having disputes. Uh, maybe we need to sing more often a song, Love One Another. <laughs> uh, so, not just to take disputes to court, uh, but to have disputes. It's wrong for the church to have, tolerate that kind of a thing. Uh, I didn't say to have difficulties Differences because we're all, as long as we uh, don't demand of each other to be cloned, actually we can demand of each other to be cloned because we are created differently. So we can't expect one another to be like we are. We're all different. We come together, uh, and love is the bond that brings us together and keeps us together. And makes decisions together in the body. And so we're going to have differences. But if we allow those differences to uh, become disputes. Like they were doing here at Corinth. Then it's contrary to the destiny of the church. And we are sinful in that. The second thing he says about disputes. uh, When you've got them isn't, uh, and it's strange that he says you shouldn't have them, and then he says when you got them, uh, what does John say in 1 John 2 verse 1? My little children, these things I have written unto you that you may not sin, but when you sin, you have an advocate. And so the intent was that there is sin, The intent was to exclude every sinful act. Uh, uh, And so Paul knew the reality. So he says, when you sin, you've got an advocate. So Paul says you should never have a dispute. It's against the destiny of the church to have a dispute. Now when you have uh, have one, settle it by Christian arbitration. And so he preaches the idea, uh, accept the real, and work toward better. And that's what we do. We accept what we have, and we begin to work toward the better, don't we? I mean, uh, we don't walk away from the congregation just because it's got problems, personal problems. We accept what we have, and we begin to work toward the better by preaching the word. It takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of endurance, and uh, we may have to give up our rights on occasions uh, for a stiff-necked brother, but we do so because we love him, all right? Uh, So that's my total philosophy of life, to accept the real and work toward a better situation. That's what we're trying to do here at Benton City, isn't it? I hope it is. Uh, we do more than just sing about how we love Jesus we're trying to manifest that love to others we're trying to show that love for his word that's why we want to earnestly know uh, and study and so he says in verse 4 set those up uh, of little account to judge and those would be the uh, disciples the uh, despised ones of chapter 1 verse 28 you remember he described how the uh, world views us and so that's how he's speaking of these despised ones he says as the world would view you you have little account cause we don't have rank in the church Uh, I don't care how rank we get We don't have rank in the church. We still uh, cause there's no rank among slaves, you see, and we're all slaves. Uh, But how does the world view uh, all of us of little account, despised? Uh, That's why uh, you're able to judge, take any good brother, set them up as a committee to judge uh, you know I'd rather do that than to be judged by the experts in in the church so Paul is saying set up the common folks those that are of little account Paul will use sarcasm quite a, uh, quite a bit as he does here and I'm not sure he's not using it Uh, in this occasion, because Paul said er, uh, earlier in chapter 4, verse 8, uh, you already rule the world. I wished I did. He's using sarcasm. And so you can see in that that they counted Paul of little account. Paul is basically saying, you count men like, like me. In chapter 4 of little account you set up men like me that's why they were calling themselves after Paul the people that we view the people they view of little account would be the significant people in God's sight and so it really doesn't matter whether uh, it's the world looking at them or them looking at them if the church of Corinth chooses the people of little account they've got the proper men to judge between brothers because uh, they've got a worldly view too uh, in their judgment. That's true because remember chapter 3 verse 1? Somebody read that real quick. Remember how he described them there? says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Yeah, they're carnal. They're worldly. And so you set up the least of them to to judge would be better than going out amongst the homosexuals and the child molesters and all that he described a while ago uh, that's of the world. You're going to let them judge you matters. It's ridiculous. So if they choose men, they count of little account. They've got the right men judging between them. If I were uh, ever being tried, uh, I would be shaken in my boots if they had 12 preachers in the Church of Christ as the jury. I don't want that. I'd rather have a commoner, uh, someone who is actually a no, account, so to speak. I'd rather they go get 12 dope addicts to be my judges, because they're not experts. Expert will get you in trouble. And so Paul says, get yourself uh, little people, ordinary people, despised by the world people. He says it's bad enough that believers have disputes with each other, and the situation is made worse that they've decided to go to law. And the situation is made twice worse in the fact that they've decided to go to law before the unbelievers. To have a dispute is bad. To have, uh, to have and have arbitration is worse. Uh, And to accept the arbitration of unbelievers is terrible. I would never direct anyone to the world's counselors. I remember having quite a bit of problems with the counselors up here at school. With my children. They call themselves counselors, but they don't have enough comments. They're not of the church, is the point, And they don't have a clue. Uh, so, uh, so I would never direct anyone to the world's counselors because they don't even have the basis to even start to begin to write uh, the preface, uh, introduction of what these people need to hear. And that's what he's saying here about their disputes. And so they don't need to judge uh, to pronounce guilty. They simply need the counsel of the body. Did you know the body can be trusted when it's uh, when it's uh, Corinth? Even with 17 things wrong with it, and it could, uh, and it, It's called worldly. That's the church can still be trusted uh, to make judgments even with their problems. If the church at Corinth existed today, just a few blocks away from here, I doubt that we would have fellowship with them or even swap preachers with them as the custom is on Sunday. But that church is able to take care of its problems They have all they need. We've seen that in chapter 2. They have the mind of Christ. So, it's to be settled by Christians' uh, arbitration. And the fact that you have a dispute is evidence of spiritual uh, defeat. Notice verse 7. He says there in verse 7, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law, Uh, one with another why don't you rather take wrong why do you not rather suffer uh, yourselves to be defrauded and so Paul says wouldn't it be better if you allowed yourself to be wrong than to do this verse 8 that's just un-American that guy doesn't have a right to wrong me but you have a right to allow yourself to be wrong. He may not have a right to be to wrong you, and he's in the wrong, but you have the right to allow him to be wrong. In other words, it's, it's like the study we have in Romans. You have the right to give up your right for a brother. And when you give up your right, that's not the end of it. You're looking down the road and thinking uh, this would be good for him because he'll come eventually to learn that he walked on me. That he done me wrong. And maybe it'll correct him and he won't do that no more. Maybe he'll learn to love me like I'm, I supposedly love him. Uh, so Paul says in verse 7 again, he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated?" Now the word translated wrong there in that text means you allow yourself of being convicted of violating a law. Now you violated no law, but allow yourself to be convicted of violating the law before you admit, defeat and hurt the church. (laughs) There's some people when they have a problem they don't care who it hurts. They're gonna yell and scream and broadcast it to everybody that will hear and listen. People that don't even want to listen is gonna find out about it cause they're self-centered, they're egotistical, and that's just the nature of the, of the beast. But if the church is preaching what they need to be preaching, and that is uh, basically uh, sermons on loving their brother, then it can cure this thing. So Paul says, allowing yourself to be looked upon as a criminal, you have that right to do that. Allow them to look on you as a criminal before you let the church be hurt because the church is going to take it uh, right between the eyes. The ungodly is out here just looking for some reason to label you as hypocrites and no good. And so before you let the body be harmed, you, uh, you allow yourself to be looked upon as a criminal, even though you're not. You don't dare drag Jesus Christ through the streets of your city like a dirty, raggedy hand doll. You don't dare set him up for public display. You know what's wrong with the body, but you don't let anybody drag that out into the public for public judgment so you don't go before the unbeliever with your matters. Uh, You be wronged before you do that. You allow yourself of being convicted of violating a law that you haven't violated before you let that happen. And then he says in verse seven, why not rather be cheated? Now the word cheated in the Greek means to suffer oneself to be deprived or defrauded in other words let them have what they want before you let the body of Christ be harmed so where's the man of God's concern with the body now you're hoping that this individual will learn his wrong and repent and grow out of it and mature out of it but you're primarily concerned about the church You're not going to throw a big tizzy in a fit because you've been unjustly treated and you're going to make the Lord pay for it too. You're going to take it out into the world. You're going to broadcast it and and all the time you're just showing yourself to be a selfish pig. that ain't got no love for the church or the brethren. Nobody but yourself. And then in verse eight, he states that Brother-to-brother disputes is contrary to the spirit of Christianity. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say this evening, get get a hold of this. Brother-to-brother disputes, in verse 8, is contrary to the spirit of Christianity. He says, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong and do this to your brothers. Uh, See, they're committing a double sin. They're violating ethical standards, but that's not their major sin. They're sinning against brotherly love is where the problem is. What's the spirit of Christianity in one word? What is the spirit of Christianity? Love. Brotherly love. And so it violates ethical standards and kingdom standards. Uh, which is one, uh, love. Uh, And that's what Jesus said. They came to him and they said, what's the law of your kingdom? And he said, love, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, that's the kingdom standard. The only standard there is in the kingdom is love. Now, many rules and regulations come out of that standard, but that is the standard. Everything we do, that's the standard, is love. When Jesus was asked the question by the Jews, what's the greatest of the law? He said it's love. And he said, "Upon those two commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor, hangs all the law and the prophets." And so, law is the uh, is the uh, manifestation of how we're to love one another. So, any standard that doesn't come out of love is not the biblical standard. Any rule that doesn't come out of love is not the biblical rule. God has ruled, uh, but they come out of love. Love for God, uh, uh, because God is love. And so, the last point uh, that Paul makes is uh, that disputes is contrary to the nature of Christianity. Uh, in verse 9-11 through 11. because the people want to go uh, before their disputes both are wrong both in position and in practice in the nature of Christianity Christianity's nature is separate S-E-P-E-R-A-T-E God separated us from darkness didn't he he put us in light He separated us from idols to serve the true and the living God. He separated us from sin, separated us from law, separated us from death, separated us. I mean, that's the constant nature of Christianity. We are saints. Now, that word does not have anything to do with sinlessness, the word saint. But it speaks of position. A position of being set apart from darkness to light. Set apart from death to life. Set apart, it's a position. Being a saint means that you have a new position. A position that is unique because it comes from God. So, uh, the word saints does not have anything to do with sinlessness. But it speaks of position. I hope you get that. Now the first thing Paul says uh, is the people you're wanting to go before in judgment, they're not in the kingdom. They don't inherit the kingdom. And so it's contrary to the nature of the kingdom to take a separate case before un. Uh, separated people, you're gonna take it before the world. They're not, they're not saints. They're not separated. They don't even have the standard to judge unless we are in the world. And so it's, uh, and so it's against the separate nature of the church to go before uh unbelievers because they're outside and they have no part in the kingdom of god and so paul says don't take your disputes before unbelievers because of their position they're outside the body and they don't have any part of the kingdom that's the nature of christianity separate nature demands that and also because of their practice which keeps them outside the kingdom. He says their position is that they don't have any part in the kingdom. Their practice is stated in uh, (coughs) 10 Greek words, which are very important. Uh, So important that the Spirit had Paul write them down uh, for their consideration these people of the world that you're going to take your matters to in a court. Uh, these are our ten evils that we read there in those words, and some of those Greek words have come over into the English uh, very interestingly. The first one is particular uh, fornication. That's... Uh, P-E-R-N-O-S, from which we have the word uh, pornography. The word originally meant to sell others or oneself immorally, to immorality. The word has come to mean any sexual perversion. It could be lesbianism, uh, beastlyism, sodomy, Uh, masturbation, any sexual perversion uh, is involved in that word that Paul used there. It's normally used in the papyri in the time of the New Testament for one who is literally a fornicator, one who is having sexual relationships with someone he has no right to, whether it be a woman, or a man, or an animal. It's the broad word for sexual immorality, impurity. And then the next word is the word that Paul uses here from which we have idolaters, worshipers of idols. Originally, uh, a covenant breaker, the violation of any covenant. But as we... uh, entered the first century, the word has become mostly a sexual word, adultery. He mentions male prostitutes, and the word means soft, effeminate, if, if a homosexual viewpoint. Homosexual, one who lies with a male, that would be a sodomite, a person having sex with a homosexual. One is the doer uh, and the other is the receiver. That's the difference between the male prostitute and the homosexual. And then he mentions a thief, uh, and the word in the Greek is klepti, uh, kleptomania, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, now, who in the world would want to go and take their case before these kind of people that we just Paul described? And that's why he described them. Uh, that's Paul's point. And uh, then he mentions covetousness or greedy. And that's one who has has or claims more than his share. If he's never satisfied with what he's got and thinks he deserves more, he's covetous. Now, (laughs) there's nothing wrong in Gathering the blessings that comes your way. But when that is your lifestyle to go after, and you desire, you crave, and you work, and you do everything toward that goal, then you're a covetous person. Uh, And Paul says in chapter 5, verse 10, that we read last week, we're to withdraw from them, from drunkards and from... uh, Uh, those who are stupefied and stunned, slanderers and swindlers. Uh, Now those are the guys who go uh, to take your case and uh, surely you're not that dumb to believe that those kind of guys are going to be able to do a better job than the guy you baptized yesterday. And so... (laughs) If you need somebody to arbitrate your differences, at least get a brother that's not considered of any account, really. He just been baptized last week. He don't have a lot of maturity, but he does look to God's word, doesn't he? So he's gonna do his research, isn't he, a little bit. He's gonna be fair-minded. He's not gonna be a homosexual they're not gonna be the people that Paul described out of the world. And that's what they were doing was taking their cases uh, to those outside the church and airing their dirty laundry in front of the world, dragging Jesus as a raggedy Ann doll down the street. So actually I'd rather take 12 people one week old in Christ, and take my case to them rather than these uh, humanistic experts that he just mentioned. Now, you you need to remember that it was the experts that killed Jesus, wasn't it? And you want to take your case before them? I'd rather be judged by people listening to Jesus than experts that are willfully ignorant. Our time's up. I guess we'll call it quits and begin with verse 11 as we finish out this section on brother to brother. Uh, Next week. me that a lot of these things need to be brought up for us to look at (laughs) in regard to this uh, sixth chapter here. So, 17. What's the date? 17. 17. Uh, 11, 17. Oh, this-